Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome back to another episode of the Draft Time Show here on The Voice of Islam on a Friday afternoon. Today with myself, Raza, and brother, uh, brother Daniel, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I, I do, I sincerely, ap- no, 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 I, I feel bad about it now. You know, you know what I it leave? is, you know what it is, you know what it is, because I, I go from right to left, so usually he's on my right, yeah. and then I come to, so it's, it's a force of habit. I do apologize sincerely. sincerely. Yeah, you you better. Brother and Daniel I, and, 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 with me. And only. I hope you, uh, Brother Kayum, is not listening to this. <laughs> I don't want him to feel invaded. <laughs> but yeah, um, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. How are you? I am very well. Thank you very much. Uh, really pleased to be here. I don't know how you feel about, about oh, me yes, being here, but, but always, I, always, I, always. I, I certainly am very happy to be here. And we're talking this afternoon about uh, a very interesting topic, uh, which is about the world economy and achieving security and cooperation in an increasingly fractured world. Um, as we all know, the World Economic Forum has been having its meetings in Davos over the last um, week. The World Economic Forum, so what, what is it? It's the International Organization for Public-Private Cooperation. The forum engages the foremost political, business, cultural, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas. It was established way back in 1971, actually, as a not-for-profit foundation, and it's headquartered in Geneva in Switzerland. It is independent, impartial, and not tied to any specific interests, according to its website. The forum strives, as it says on its website, in all its efforts to demonstrate entrepreneurship in the global public interest while upholding the highest standards of governance Moral and intellectual integrity is at the heart of everything it does, according to its websites. The activities of World Economic Forum, or WEF, are shaped by a unique institutional culture founded on the stakeholder theory, which asserts that an organization is accountable to all parts of society. The institution, therefore, carefully blends and balances the best of many kinds of organizations from both public and private sectors, international organizations, as well as academic institutions. To talk more about the World Economic Forum, um, what it does, as well as the general situation um, uh, of the world, uh, let's now go, go straight to our first guest, who is John Hearn, uh, who is an economist and author and university lecturer on programs in economics, banking, and finance. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you, and uh, peace be with you and all of us in this uh, uncertain world at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I couldn't have uh, introduced um, uh, this better, Professor. So if I can start by asking you... Um, you know, I'm 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 looking at the uh, the digital edition of uh, Economist dot com, the latest edition. Yep. And some of the headlines are 2024 will be stressful for those who care about democracy. The world must try to break a vicious cycle of insecurity. Another headline says, "Don't give up on peace in the Middle East." Um, another headline says, "Europe needs to step up support for Ukraine and." Uh, and bolster uh, the um, aggression or, or the defense, yeah. whichever side you are, against Russia. Um, this obviously doesn't um, look like a very happy state of the world. Uh, how bleak or 
great the situation is starting, the economic situation of the world is starting 2024, in your opinion? Yes, unfortunately, you've described it and the economist described it very well. There are very difficult times ahead uh, and much of it is the the lag, if you like, uh, which comes from the pandemic, a period of time when people didn't work, uh, money was uh, expanded, uh, followed by inflation. Uh, and uh, I suppose if you really want to get to the basis of this in society, I, mean, I ask my undergraduates, do you want to be better off in your life? Do you want to be better off than your parents and your grandparents? And the answer is always yes. Now, the only way we can all become better off is if we have what's called economic growth. With economic growth, we can all become better off. But as soon as you don't have economic growth, then you can only become better off if other people become worse off. And that's where you end up in a world of infighting. People, wars, people trying to take things from other people, increases in vandalism, and so it goes on. And that worries me that we're moving towards a no-growth world in which you could only become better off if someone else becomes worse off. And it's almost highlighted, if you like, by the things you described that are going on in the world now. Uh, I, am, I, I should warn anyone who's listening, of course, uh, reasonably controversial in the sense that I don't necessarily toe the line uh, of other economists. So you do have to listen uh, carefully to me and, and argue with me. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, there is, if, if, if you... During the pandemic... In, Lovely uh, to have you, Professor, on the show. <laughs> <laughs> ne- neither do we as a, <laughs> as a, as a channel, <laughs> should I say. Well, that's right. I think that's why you speak to me, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess that's why we speak to each other. I think that's, uh, that's, that's a great part of it. Uh, uh, you mentioned you know, all, all the challenges um, that are happening. How many of these problems are self-inflicted? And I ask this again, you know, I, I'm not trying to be smart no. or even impertinent. I, I ask this because, you know, if you, if, you, if you try to remove yourself from the conflicts that are happening in the world at the moment, no. uh, the major flashpoints, and if you try to analyze them, uh, not jingoistically, um, uh, not with a political inf- uh, affiliation, but if you try to be, at least try to be neutral, you will see that the, the, what what are the Houthis asking? Houthis are saying, uh, d- uh, push for a ceasefire in Israel and we'll stop this. Mm. Um, what was Russia saying? Again, you know, I, I, you know, I'm trying to use my words carefully, and I'm I'm yeah. I, I'm saying this with a bit of trepidation, uh, also uh, because you know there's strong views on on both sides. But Russia did say, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, before it went to war against Ukraine, that you know take NATO membership off the table, and we can have a discussion. We won't uh, we won't attack. Um, then you have another major flashpoint um, again. The, again, uh, these days, especially in was it Taiwan um, between Taiwan and China. Indeed. And we had what only a couple of years ago, we had the second highest official in the United States, uh, which is the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, uh, paying a visit to Taiwan. Um, so, the question—I mean, the long-winded question—I'm trying to ask is. Do you think some of these problems are really self-inflicted? Um, well, yes, I suppose I have to say they are in terms of uh, 
uh, we're all uh, human beings making these mistakes. And I think one of the things that we're not doing around the world is just recognizing sovereign states. And there are people who are saying, no, this isn't a sovereign state, and therefore it's okay if we try and come into that state and take over and do things. We recognize there are some people in that country there who speak our language, so we think we should go in and support them. So what we're doing is creating a situation uh, where uh, no one's happy, if you like, with the situation that they're in, and there's been no agreements about what is a sovereign state. And one of the things that is almost sad, really, is that you you see something come up uh, about uh, countries at warfare, mm. and, and it says um, this country is breaking the rules of warfare. Uh, in other words, there are rules. You can go out and kill other people as long as you observe these rules. Yeah. You can't go out and kill them if you don't observe these rules, whereas I'd quite like to see a world where there are rules that say you can't go and kill anyone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like you say right at the start, it's peace for all of us, isn't it? And yeah. somehow you've got to get around the table and talk about things and stop warfare. Mm. Now, John, rather Daniel alluded to you know two three major uh, hot zones. Basically, I want yep. to specifically focus on what is happening in the Red Sea. So you we know that very recently we've seen heard reports of the Houthis attacking yep. merchant ships in the Red Sea. How do you think? And I think this is a question that a lot of people here are asking themselves: Is that going to impact us? If so, long term, short term. How is that going to play out? What's what's your view on that? Right, it'll play out. It uh, depends how long it goes on, of course, whether it becomes short-term or long-term. But the effect is that uh, ships will have to be redirected. They'll have to be redirected during longer routes. That raises the costs of transport. That raises the costs of production. And it'll raise the price of those products which are uh, being moved through uh, longer distribution channels. That then leads to a situation, not as most people would think, they'll jump in and say, oh, well, that means there's more inflation around the world. Well, that's actually not correct. There's no more inflation when prices go up under these circumstances because there are individual prices that will be affected, and those prices can either be absorbed in the market or they can't be absorbed in the market, which tends to mean that the costs of producing and selling products will go up. People won't want to buy unemployment will rise. So the impact of this around the world is likely to be, um, as if it goes on long enough, rising unemployment in those areas affected by the fact that their distribution channels have lengthened and their costs of producing have gone up. So it won't cause inflation around the world. Inflation around the world is caused by central banks. You can ask me about that in a minute. Sure. Uh, <laughs> central banks actually cause the inflation. But individual prices uh, and individual prices will be affected by having to change these routes. If we have an agreement and we go back to how we were, then costs will fall. But uh, uh, at the moment, costs are just rising for those products which uh, distribute through the most efficient channel, namely the Red Sea. John, almost sounds like that um, that you don't feel that there is a huge amount of risk associated with what's happening in or around the Red Sea at the moment. Did I capture that correctly? Oh no, no, tremendous risk. Right. Uh, I think I think it's a, a very bad situation uh, that we are in, uh, and uh, it seems to be spreading. And it could be, you know, the fire that uh, or the flame that lights the fire of 
a much greater world conflict during this year. I hope not. I hope people come to their senses and start talking. But it's very, very difficult uh, if you sort of say, yeah, OK, you can all go to war with each other and kill each other, as long as you observe these rules. Mm. Uh, and that's the thing that worries me. You know, I'd like quite you know, a United Nations, uh, a World Economic Forum, uh, big world organization saying this has got to stop. Anyone who goes and kills anyone else is therefore liable to prosecution. Um, You you can't have a special case where, yes, you can kill people under those circumstances, but not those. That's what worries me. Do you see, John, that happening, actually, that United Nations suddenly takes a center stage role, uh, whereas we all know how sidelined it has become in recent decades and World Economic Forum and uh, the other international organizations? Well, you do have to have international organizations controlling this. Otherwise, you know, ask two countries, ask Ukraine, ask Russia, uh, ask Israel, uh, ask Palestine, uh, uh, can you sit down and, and, mm. and stop this? And they'll say, well, no, no, it's not the right time to stop it. We're losing, or, or this has happened to us. So mm. it, it's got to be a broad um, overview Sources. I mean, it would be probably a jolly good idea if uh, uh, aliens from Mars came and invaded <laughs> us. Then we'd all get together and go, yes, we've better protect ourselves against those. Let's get on as humanity and save ourselves. I, but I, until John, that happens... <laughs> I, I think we probably need aliens here because I, I don't think any other way. I mean, I, I don't think... I can't see... Uh, United Nations, to be honest, uh, to be no. to be to be realistic, to occupy a center stage role because um, it, everything that United Nations tries to do uh, within its power is vetoed by yeah. one power or another. You know, there was uh, if we're talking if we're trying to stop a war, the war in Europe between Ukraine and Russia, Russia would veto it. Yeah. The Israel-Palestine conflict, as we know, is uh, is being vetoed consistently by the United States. So, I, I guess United Nations is powerless here. Yeah, I mean, that's where those rules are wrong, that you have that veto. Mm. I mean, one of the things you could possibly do about this is say anyone involved in a conflict cannot vote on this. In other words, they can't veto Mm. it, they can't say anything other than address the Assembly, but the Assembly will make up its mind without their vote. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I just wish that um, you and I were uh, were drafting the new rules for (laughs) for United Nations. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So, where, in, to your mind, yep. where do you see us heading in 2024? How strong are the headwinds? Uh, very strong, unfortunately. Um, and I, I don't really see solutions because the things being thrown out there for ways of getting things under control are just not going to work. Uh, I mean, I didn't mention central banks to you. Um, and uh, I think that one of your concerns was central banks, are they the way forward? Are they the way that's going to sort of settle down and calm the world? And the answer, again, is no but. Um, central banks only deal with domestic currency. Mm-hmm. They don't deal with world currency. Now, the central banks are trying to get together to introduce a central bank digital currency. Now, unfortunately, if they do get together and do that, uh, they may be able to control a world currency, but whether they'll be able to control it well or not, 
I don't know. I mean, I've argued against central bank digital currencies. Um, I've been invited to various crypto uh, conferences to talk there because uh, Bitcoin and cryptos would seem an obvious alternative if a central bank digital currency or a central bank currency system is not working. But unfortunately, there's a fatal flaw in uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, uh, and that is that you can't control their supply. And at the end of the day, for any currency, what you want is a control over the supply that causes the currency to grow roughly in line with the rate of real growth of economies, as there are more goods and services to exchange. So you want more currency there for the average level of prices to remain unchanged. Stable prices are the best thing you could possibly have for a world to grow. And for a world to grow, it's not governments pumping money into the economy. It's not fiscal deficits. Uh, for a world to grow, what you need is invention and innovation. And for emerging countries, you need emergent, emerging current countries to look what do we produce best? What can we produce better than other people? And they need to be free to get into markets and to sell their products. That's the way uh, the world grows. Just trying to fight for uh, a bit of the same amount of, of, of what's in circulation at the moment uh, just means fighting and battles. And we don't want that. And we also want to change some of our policies and become much more realistic uh, in terms of, say, green policies. Did you see any of these themes being discussed, um, if not agreed, at the World Economic Forum meetings? No, unfortunately, I've uh, n never been a great fan of uh, the World Economic Forum because Me neither. Uh, they have... They have big ideas. I mean, it, it's a strange thing, but, you know, take someone like a, a billionaire like Bill Gates. Yeah. Uh, Bill Gates is influential in trying to change the world and do things. And just as a little tester, um, I, I said to Bill and Melinda Gates, I said, I'm looking for some money to set up a foundation to support capitalism. After all, capitalism was what made you rich. You know, you saw a market, <laughs> uh, you saw a market where things were growing and you made lots of money. Why don't we have uh, support for that process to continue? Uh, let's promote countries, firms, people with ideas to do things. Let's not try and suppress that and let's not try and say we've got to do this, we've got to do that. So the worrying thing for me always is when you have organizations with lots of billionaires, they've all got great ideas about how the world could be a better place at the end of the the world's a better place because individual people are striving to make themselves better off. They're striving to do something. They're striving to, striving to um, find niches in markets and sell products. And by selling products, they become better off and the people who buy the products become better off. You know, I, I'm a great fan, as you'll see, if you go on my website and read all about it for capitalism and all the wonderful things that happen under capitalism. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't fit a World Economic Forum plan. Uh, yes, I haven't been on your website, but uh, just <laughs> listening to you the past few minutes, yeah, I, I, uh, the kind of alignment, I guess, that you and I have, I think uh, you should probably join Voice of Islam as, as, as a resident economist. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you should ask other people that. They'll say, no, that bloke's mad. We don't want to listen to him. All those silly things he That's says. what they say about us also. So <laughs> that's all right. Uh, <laughs> that makes two of us. Um, okay, so... Um, in terms of uh, 
you know, the risks to uh, to global growth. Uh, yep. Do you see um, energy supply being an issue and therefore pricing pricing being an issue as well in 2024? Yes. Yeah, very much so. Um, because, again, there's a sort of philosophy behind what we're doing, which is very costly to the world, uh, and that is really to, to focus on, say, climate change, global warming, and saying, how are we going to stop that? There's never any questions about, can we stop it? Um, what do we do? What's the cost of what we do? I mean, as economists, we always look at cost benefits. And what you're looking for always is to have effective things which are low cost and have big benefits. And all the things they're talking about around green uh, policies are, are not that effective and are debatable. There's a discussion about them. Uh, for example, I did question and found a report not that long ago to say we, we meet reaching a crossover point where actually fossil fuels are better for the environment than electric cars. Um, we're better running our cars on petrol uh, at the moment because of the improvements that there are in petrol engines and there's less damage to the environment. So I'd quite like to take away these words about climate change and that and say let's look at the environment. Let's look at the environment. Let's look at the things we can do which are cheap to do, don't cost poor countries lots of money, uh, and uh, they will be effective because they have really big effects. So um, it, it would be a case of dismantling uh, most green policies uh, by just saying, it's pie in the sky. The costs of doing this are just damaging the world. And I always felt uh, a long, long time ago, I meant refrigeration. Uh, refrigeration was something that I always thought of as third world countries going, great, wouldn't it be a fabulous to have a refrigerator and we could put all our cold drinks in it. At that point in time, they changed the rules about refrigeration. and Refrigerations all of a sudden became more expensive. So all those poor people couldn't afford fridges because of a change in policy about what was good refrigerants as opposed to bad refrigerants. It, it's silly things like that, but if you want people of the world to become better off you've got to be very very careful in the way that you try and um, form policies which are very costly and have very little benefit in the wake of the um the headwinds that you and i are talking about yep. um, how well capitalized are banks um, around the world and especially in the western world to face these headwinds in 2024 they're certainly in a better position than they were uh, when we came up to the global financial crisis. They're mm -hmm. all, if you like, protecting themselves a little more by holding um, a more secure base to the banking system. Um, there are, unfortunately, always um, the outliers uh, who, I suppose, are trying to uh, take a, uh, a ride uh, and, and, and get in quickly into something. So, I think the banking system is quite well capitalized, and I don't see a great deal of problems uh, with banks. The only banks that worry me are central banks. Yeah. And so, and in fact, you can see, if you go onto my website, I'm going to do a bit of promotion here, aren't you? Hey, sure. I had some chats with a former member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England. We, we did uh, um, half a dozen chats about inflation, quantitative easing, interest rates, economic growth, fiscal policies, things of that sort, to try and 
put the Bank of England's view against my view. So it's a discussion where we disagree with each other. But, you know, I like a world where there is discussion and people disagreeing with each other because that's the way that you get for, go forward uh, and find uh, solutions to things. So that we've got to do almost what we're doing, and that's talk about things. Correct. Discuss things. In the post-COVID world, um, we, I think we can agree that the banks are... are a lot uh, better capitalized than they were a few yeah. years ago. Uh, what about the the national governments? What about um, uh, uh, what about countries um, and their economic situation and their debt levels and and what sort of uh, systemic risk do you think that poses? All right, that's a very big problem because that's fiscal policy. That's to do with taxation, spending, and borrowing. And unfortunately, there's an enormous amount of borrowing uh, around the world, big fiscal deficits uh, in America, uh, in almost every um, country, uh, more developed or less developed countries. And these are the very these are the real problems because they have to be financed. And again, economists won't agree with me on this one, but take it from me. The national debt and the growth in the national debt every year has to be paid for by the taxpayer. No one else pays. It's the current taxpayer who pays. It's the future taxpayer who pays. Or if we take inflation as a tax on money, which is exactly what it is, inflation uh, will occur. And I don't see us not having another bout of inflation coming up, not next year, but the year after. You've got elections around the world and elections always mean politicians promising to do more and not cutting anything. Let's just do more. Um, uh, and when that happens, uh, you've got the recipe for more inflation because you can have bigger deficits that end up being financed by uh, what's called a monetary policy, which uh, buys debt by printing money. And that printing of money then causes the inflation and inflation then is that tax on money. So uh, I do see from, I mean, I did predict, and you can go back in your records because I did predict the double-digit inflation uh, last time, uh, time before last when I spoke to you, and I did tell you last time that inflation would fall towards the end of this year because of the way monetary policy has been managed. It'll now, it'll go along the bottom uh, at low rates for a few more months, and then it'll start to pick up again. Um, and that's... Uh, that's the worry because uh, uh, governments are causing the inflation uh, but pretending they're not. So they're going to blame someone else for that. Uh, but the inflation will be uh, um, government-led and central bank-led, of course, because they're the people who actually get the money out there and get it printed to, uh, to distribute in the economy and th thought they're going to do good. But uh, history says it doesn't do any good printing money. John Hun, thank you so very much uh, for joining us uh, this afternoon. Um, a colleague, actually, my colleague, is uh, yep. is advising me that um, you and I should uh, get together for coffee. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I probably agree with him. But that sounds a good idea. Unfortunately, I think I said to, uh, before, I'm at the RAF club tonight uh, with my former students, uh, who look after me wonderfully well. And these are people, um, we're going, I'm at a cocktail party with people I taught 50 years ago. Right, well, have a lovely time there. Uh, <laughs>
Lovely but I look forward to a coffee with you. Oh, uh, me, me too. Absolutely. Let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, put that in the diary separately. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much. Lovely speaking with you. Um, yeah. Have a lovely weekend and have have a, have a lovely get together as well. Peace be with you. Thank you, and the same to you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye bye. So that was uh, John Hearn, who is an <coughs> economist, author, and university lecturer on programs in economics, banking, and finance uh, talking to us about myriad of things um, uh, least about uh, not least about the uh, the um, state of the world uh, and state of the world economy uh, at the moment I guess we have our our next yeah. uh, guest um, Sean Richards who's an economist specializing in inflation and monetary economic uh, and no stranger to the draft time show is joining us now Sean good afternoon peace upon you and welcome to the draft time show thank you good afternoon and happy new year to you all happy new year to you too um now uh, John was speaking about inflation the role of central banks uh, just to start off with, he mentioned uh, briefly what inflation actually is, but for the benefit of our listeners, how does that impact the global economy? Who's behind that? Who controls? Well, um, the actual measure, and there's two ways of doing it, but the main one is simply looking at price rises. Now, the textbook definition is a continuous price rise. Actually, nothing really does that. I think the markets that are most always open are the oil ones, but they do shut for a little bit over the weekend. But So the issue comes of how you measure this because, you know, there's differences in what each person spends and so on. So the numbers we receive are an attempt to have an idea of how much extra it's costing people. Um, I don't think actually in most respects are very good at it, to be honest with you. But the concept is one whereby you go and buy the same thing and next week, next month, next year, it's more expensive. That's the problem. Mm. And where that's been an issue, if we look backwards over the last couple of years, and of course everyone listening to this will know that a lot of prices have gone up a lot. Wages, not necessarily. And so that's a drain on the economy. It's an awkward one to outright specify. But for example, I think we saw an example of that in the UK this morning when the retail sales figures came out. It wasn't just that December was a poor month, down 3.2%, but the year as a whole was down a bit over 2%. And that's the impact of inflation. People's money, putting it in another form, is not going quite as far as it did. Now, if we look around the world, we see mostly quite similar trends. Inflation went very high in Europe. Inflation went very high in the United States. Um, in some places, it's been soaring through the roof. If anyone listened to this follows Argentina, then they recently had annual inflation above 200%. Hmm. Various issues there, and there are several Latin American countries with real problems with it. The place that mostly keeps out of this is Japan. Anyone that follows um, the Japanese story, and this is this is frightening. I worked out there 30 years ago, roughly, and basically over that period, Japan has been in what's called the lost decade. Obviously, it's more than one decade now. But one of the features of this is that they've had virtually no inflation. Hmm. So this phase has affected them too. They've seen inflation of 3 or 4%, and for them, that feels like a lot. Because here's another factor I'll add into the thing as well as the actual 
increase, which you can measure by maths, there's the psychological impact on people feeling, you know, what's this going to be worth and so on. So it covers quite a lot of areas it affects. Sure. So um, how do you see this, uh, uh, the, the inflationary trends or the risks affecting growth here uh, in Western Europe? Uh, and uh, if I may, uh, even in the BRICS economies? Well, one of the problems for Europe is just simply our energy policy. Mm. We've decided to have an energy policy that, if we put aside the other issues, is extremely expensive. And that creates its problems. I mean, for example, in the UK, we've seen the example of Tata, haven't we? The steel firm yeah. closing. Yeah. Why? Because policies are uncompetitive. I was looking at the numbers for Germany, um, at the beginning of this week because they had poor figures and within that was in fact an example of what you would call deindustrialization, whereby we're actually driving industries away because our energy prices are so high and they're going basically places where they're cheaper. Where's that? Well, obviously the Middle East is one point for obvious reasons. To some extent the United States because of shale oil and gas. So that's a particular sort of, how can I put it, well, basically a dragging anchor on us, both looking backwards and forwards. Um, we've been fortunate this winter so far. I know it's cold at the minute, but mostly it's been mild. And then in general, it's been windy. So things could have been worse. But there's still that ongoing issue. So in terms of these things feeding into economies, I think for Europe, that's a major effect. If you look wide around the rest of the world, then other places have different circumstances coming from the energy policy because not everyone has put themselves in the straitjacket, mm. if I can put it like that, that we have. And they have other choices. So, you know, there's, there's a whole different set of impacts, as I was explaining in part of the thing. Some countries in the world will be benefiting from our industries leaving because they'll be going there. So given these risks, how important do you think, Sean, is for um, the major central banks in the world, uh, at least like you know, Federal Reserve and the Chinese Central Bank um, and the European Central Bank to work together rather than work in silos? Um, well, to some extent that happens. Right. Because I call the U.S. Federal Reserve the leader of the pack. Mm -hmm. And we've just been through a phase whereby, in essence, people have had to follow them. Why? Because the U.S. dollar was very strong. And if your monetary policy was perceived to be weaker than the U.S., then your currency got hit and your inflation got worse. And so you ended up raising interest rates anyway. Um, there's an element of that in the U.K. in the autumn of 2022 and we had the issues there but uh, one of the clearest cases I write about is Canada Canada was in an awkward situation very near to the US obviously literally geographically but its central bank meetings in terms of timing were a week or so before the US so basically their ones were trying to guess what the Federal Reserve was going to do so that's one factor by the US dollar in its role um, in terms of some of the others there's slightly different things. There was 
there was a period whereby the European Central Bank tried to set policy quite different from the US. For example, they had mm -hmm. negative interest rates. But actually, they've been forced back into line by the dollar issues I just spoke about. Um, China's a little different in various ways, but the limit, even they have a currency restriction. But the reason why I say that they're different is that they intervene in their currency more. It's unfair to say it's a fixed rate. It isn't. But it's much more manipulated by them than ours. So they have a bit more flexibility. Um, and in terms of them all doing the same policy, that's an interesting idea. But you see, the problem with that is, my view is that they've done the wrong policy. And I don't mean it was wrong to raise interest rates. What I mean is, they took too long doing it. It's one of the things of the old saying, a stitch in time saves nine mm. with interest rates. They made the old mistakes. Here's a real irony for you. Central bankers are supposed to be technocrats. They're supposed to know what they're doing. Why did they get the job? Why was the Bank of England made operationally independent back in 1997? Mm -hmm. To try and avoid the mistakes that politicians made, which was raising interest rates too late. Then, because you've raised them too late, you raise them too high because you're in a bit of a panic, which they've, in my view, repeated. Mm. And then this year is going to be an interesting one because it's election year in the US. Yep. If it's not election year in the UK, it'll be very close to it. And then it looks like we're going to see interest rate cuts. So basically, they've followed the political timetable. So we haven't really gained anything at all because in some respects... It would be more honest if the politicians did it, wouldn't it? How, um, what sort of impact do you think this will have uh, on global financial markets in 2024? Well, I think for one example is, I know that we've, over the last few days, we've seen the US dollar be stronger again. Mm. But in general, that phase should mostly be over now. That's one factor. Um, I think in terms of things like bond markets, they're already pricing in quite large falls in interest rates. Just to give you an example, uh, UK bank rate's still five and a quarter percent, people know, but our 10-year yield is 4%. Yeah. So that's already pricing in a few cuts. Mm. So I'm not expecting a lot of moves in that, but as 2024 develops, and depending how things go, there could be moves there. I know that, for example, this week, the UK inflation numbers are a little disappointing because it flipped back up to 4% yeah. of CPI. But say when we get to April, it looks like we're going to have quite a heavy fall in energy prices, about 15%. If you have your influences, inflation could be quite a bit lower, in which case we could see bond yields dropping again when the central banks come to cut interest rates. So there's factors. Equity markets are harder to read because hmm. for the UK... The FTSE basically hasn't done much for years or decades. So it, it's a, that's an awkward one. The US market's very high already in terms of the S&P. Right. Do you expect the inflation rate here in the UK to continue to go down and, in, and energy prices continue to go down despite what we see around the world in terms of the Red Sea and in terms of uh, you know all the other volatilities? Well, the Red Sea is an awkward one because in terms of if we now look at, the, say, the oil price, it's had virtually no impact. Mm. 
Not so no, far, obviously. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was looking at it earlier, and I think it was a bit below $78, for example, for Brent crude. Well, you know, in terms of, say, after the Ukraine issue, people would have snapped your arm off for a price like that. Hmm. Now, this time round, it's well, it's at oil. There's a bigger issue nearby. But prices have mainly shrugged it off, assuming, I think, that the main players here don't actually really want an outright war. That it's a sort of, what's the thing? A phony war is the wrong thing because people are being fired at. But in terms of the oil price and oil infrastructure, mostly it's going to be avoided. Now, obviously, that could go wrong. And if it did, the price would then shoot up. But for the moment, we're getting quite a bit of action, aren't we, without the oil price doing anything at all. In terms of energy prices and gas and things like that for Europe and ourselves, then we're mostly through winter now. I mean, in terms of planning of it, obviously more of it's to play out. And the reserves are quite high and the weather's been mostly mild. So we're going to have a, a trend now looking through to the summer and then maybe the autumn before everyone starts looking at next winter, where most things are locked in. And we should see some high, uh, excuse me, lower prices. But obviously, next winter could be very different. It could be a cold one, and things would then be a lot tougher for us to get through because of the energy policy I described before. Um, one of the things I do each day on Twitter is put out our actual electricity supply at that point. And one of the things that it highlights on the other side of the coin is how variable wind power is. Some days it's very helpful. Other days it's very little. Mm. And that's the problem looking further ahead. What if we get a phase of cold still days? That would be, say, the issue for next winter. Finally, um, Sean, I'd like to get your thoughts on uh, the World Economic Forum. Do you think um, it is it is able to collaborate in the manner that um, it set out to do in 1971? No, I don't think so, because I think it's got twisted. Because now, rather than being a collaboration, as you just described, it's a way of imposing on people, isn't it? You know, I mean, let's face it, we're getting a lot of very wealthy people flying to Davos and Switzerland, living the high life, telling everyone else not to live like that and not to fly either, aren't they? <laughs> There's not really a lot of collaboration mm. in that, is there? They're mm. supposed to take the train. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, obviously, Swiss trains are famously on time and stuff like that, but they don't use them, do they? Yeah. <laughs> and so that's the problem I have with that. <clears throat> and it is, so the collaboration element that it was supposed to start with, it's not like that now, is it? is essentially telling people what to do and other people what to do because they don't behave like that. As far as I can see, there's pictures, aren't there, every year of all the private jets at the nearest airport mm. and that sort of thing. And so there's a problem. And I think it, it's my personal opinion that that's a collective issue because I think a lot of politicians have been influenced by this. Mm. But then what happens to democracy? Surely they're supposed to do what their voters, to some extent, instruct them. And I know that's vague in terms of manifestos and so on. Mm. But then something like a form, it's, sort of, it's trying to impose itself as a sort of type of world government. 
I don't think that's right. And it's certainly not. I can't see as collaboration because I think it breaks away from the principles of democracy. Hmm. Who votes for them? They seem to select themselves, don't they? Speaking about governments, I, I recently saw, I think it was two clips. I mean, this is not recent, but they're, they're I think, a year or two old. One was from the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and the other one was, I don't know who it was, but was one of the top politicians also from Germany. And she was asked about the average pension of a pensioner in Germany. And she's the one actually leading the committee that decides on, 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 on that question. Olaf Scholz was asked the question about, do you know how much one liter of diesel or petrol is at, at the petrol station at the moment? And of course, both of them didn't know the answer to that. The question I want to ask you is also looking at the World Economic Forum, and we're looking at billionaires, we're talking about um, CEOs of companies, influential people, VIPs, and you name it. How far or how close from reality do you think these people are making decisions on behalf of the general public? I would imagine they're a very long way away. <laughs> Wouldn't you? In terms of the lives that they lead. Yeah. You know, the, 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 it's what's called in sort of types of economics, things are sort of bubbles blowing up. Not making them all West Ham fans, but they are forever blowing bubbles. And mm. um, we, we see it in various aspects of modern life, aren't they? They're one of them. I believe there was an interview this morning on the BBC. A um, person in charge of British Gas was asked to justify his four and a half million pounds a year salary. Um, actually, to be fair to him, I think he said he couldn't. But anyway, it sort of reinforces the point. And then we see another thing. So I'm a football fan, a Chelsea fan. And look at the money that's been splashed around there. Now, that really doesn't touch real life for the vast majority of people at all, does it? So how you know, long do you think, Sean, can we continue this? Well, this is the thing. There's a divide already happening, no? Well, yeah, but we keep saying it has to stop, and then it carries on, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, if, you, if we look back to, say, the credit crunch, and then banks were supposed to not do this and not do that, and then we've rolled on through many of the years, and then we've come back to quite a lot of the same things. There must be, for example, similar behavior in the housing market because how are house prices where they were? Hmm. If they got up to previous levels through things being wrong, how are they higher now? You know, and so that's the, that's the problem. They always turn around and say um, that this has to stop. But these things have a habit of going on and on and on. You know, I think what was it? I think it was about to quote it wrongly, but John Maynard Keynes, a famous economist, did something like markets can stay at a level longer than you can remain solvent. Mm. And the point is, you know, that these things do roll on. It's very difficult. You can can look at certain areas and think it has to change. And let's go back to football, as I'm a fan, and think of it via that. That there've been various things that you think it can't go on. Firstly, say the sky money, Mm. then. the issue of it being so popular abroad. Now we're seeing a whole wave of foreign investors, a lot of them from the United States, aren't we? And these are coming in in extraordinary sums of money. And yeah. you keep thinking it has to stop. And then very occasionally someone does. And, you know, look at poor Everton. Looks like they've been punished once. Maybe he'll punished again. But in general, it seems to keep going, doesn't it? And then when everyone thought, oh, that was it, 
then Saudi Arabia started buying players. Mm-hmm. Well, some of them are, are coming back now. And, and, and Sean, if I can just say, I, we, I agree with the, a lot of what you're saying. And I and we almost became friends before you mentioned Chelsea. <laughs> uh, oh, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've been a Chelsea fan as far as I can remember. I can't change that, I'm afraid. Okay. No, no compromise on the I'll, football. I'll forgive you for that then. Uh, my last question would be um, around multilateralism. So we've talked about World Economic Forum. We can see how United Nations is being sidelined. Uh, and we can talk about other multilateral institutions as well. Do you think multilateralism is failing or institutions are failing? I think in some respects. I think that people have got unhappy with some of the results. Uh, and that's the thing. I mean, if we say, if we pick something like the euro area, mm-hmm. now on the one hand, it's succeeding, the fact that it's getting more members in. But in other areas, I mean, one of the countries I look at a fair bit is Italy. Lovely country. But the promise of the euro was that the countries would converge. And the hope was that they'd get more like Germany in most cases. Now, I know Germany's not doing very well, but it was then, relatively. And um, But Italy struggled all the way through it. So to my mind, that's another challenge for multilateralism because, you know, it's now 2024, the Euro's roughly 25 years old. It's not really quite worked. And I think that's happened with quite a lot of the other organisations. They haven't really quite lived up to the promises. And they even say some of the good things, if you look around the world, it's not quite multilateral, but I mean a group thing, of, say manufacturing coming from places it was cheaper we've all benefited from cheaper clothes and stuff like that that have come from around the world but then now we're a bit uncomfortable with the idea of being say dependent so much on china for various things so my answer is that it's a complicated issue can countries do things together yes hopefully but a lot of the organizations have struggled haven't they i mean if we look at Something that's, uh, in my view, a really unpleasant thing at the minute, which is obviously the war that's going on around Israel. Mm -hmm. I feel sorry for both sides. But if you look at, say, a multilateral approach, you see so many places choosing one over the other, don't you? And that's where I think it starts to struggle. Yes, absolutely. Which is why we want these mad wars to stop. We want want a ceasefire, and that's what we've been... um campaigning actually much the best answer yes yeah uh sean lovely speaking with you thank you so very much for joining us have a lovely weekend ahead and peace be with you thank you thank you thank you bye-bye economic justice is a beautiful slogan whereas attempts have been made to monopolize it to the exclusion of the others the slogan is common to both the capitalist society of the free market economy as well as the scientific social doctrine of dialectical materialism Both talk of justice, but with due apologies, I must express my dismay in that both have failed to do full justice to the golden principle of economic justice. This is uh, <clears throat> His Holiness Hazim Zatahir Ahmed on, the, on Islam's uh, response to contemporary issues when speaking about economic justice under capitalism, socialism, and then, of course, he speaks about Islam. And I think this is in light to a question, a similar question around this that we received on our, um, I think it was Twitter as well. And 
His Holiness has compl- has basically explained in this the role of justice. I mean, most of the time when we speak about economies, when we speak about the World Economic Forum, I think this is quite obvious for everyone if you look at the pictures, is how disconnected these people are from the reality of things. What is going on on the ground, how people are suffering in light of the decisions made at the level that they are being made and how can we rectify that and i think in all of this yes you have political systems you have economic systems that you need to have in place but what are they catered around what's the what's the end goal right absolutely and not only are they uh, they disconnected with reality most of the people are disconnected from each other yes uh, they uh, there is very little that they can agree on uh, on on a lot of things that matter globally for not only um, uh, global peace but uh, uh, justice and equality and 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 dare I also say that I think they there is very little hope for economic justice without there being social justice. Yes, the two are so closely intertwined that you know you you've got to have a rules-based order as um, uh, you know first guest John Hearn was was talking about you've got to have people respecting international law you've got to have states respecting international law and uh, unless you have a rules-based order uh, unfortunately the the outlook for this year and the next is not very positive it's not so his holiness continues and speaking about the social justice and the responsibility on the people who are making these decisions he says that Islam attempts to create an attitude whereby the governments and the wealthy are constantly reminded that it is in their own ultimate interest to establish an equitable economic system they're also constantly exhorted to be on the lookout for the rights of others the weak and poor should not be denied their fundamental economic rights such as freedom to choose one's profession, equal access to opportunities and the basic requirements of life. The lack of this very special attitude has already caused much misery, pain and disorder in the history of human struggle for survival. There is thus greater emphasis in Islam on giving than on taking or keeping and this is exactly what we find in the lifetime of the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him then later on after his demise the rightly guided caliphs what they established especially in the time of caliph uh, umar may allah be pleased with him how he took this upon his own personal shoulders as the ruler of the islamic empire to make sure that the needs of everyone in society are covered to the best of his abilities and that is a responsibility that was on his shoulders nobody else was able to carry that burden for him because as we know in the holy uh, the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him said that the world is sweet and green and verily allah has appointed you as a representative and trustee over it and that's a responsibility that we will be held accountable uh, held accountable to and God Almighty will ask us, he will question us, how did you fare on this planet? Now, we are going to continue with this topic after the news at 5. But in the meantime, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, then please feel free to give us a call on 0208687-7878 or send us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK. Don't forget, we're asking you a question as usual on our uh, Instagram poll. 
So go to our Instagram story. Do you need, this is in regards, we actually didn't even introduce the second topic, by the way. Yes. I just noticed that. Yeah, I think we probably should. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the to- the topic after the news at five, after we've concluded one more guest, is going to be uh, religion. Uh, are we in need for, is there any a need for religion? So the question is, do you need to be religious to be a good person? Yes, no, or unsure. And as always, if you want to add any more comments to that, then feel free to do so. You are listening to The Draft Time Show today with myself, Razan, brother Daniel. We're going to go to the 5 o'clock news and then we'll be back speaking about the world economy. Um, don't go anywhere. Stay with us. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you all. Thank you very much for joining us here on the Draft Time Show on a Friday afternoon. We are speaking about, and we're just going to conclude in a few minutes, about the world economy, achieving security and cooperation in a clearly very, very fractured world. Brother Daniel, at the beginning of the show, gave us an outlook of how 2024 is going to, or seems to look uh, ahead. And it wasn't a very pleasant picture, was it? No. Yeah, and it's certainly not a very uh, very favorable outlook, uh, should I say. Unfortunately, there are, I think, both uh, the economists that we spoke to, John Hearn and John Richards, agreed that headwinds for 2024 are very strong, and therefore there are very, very strong risks to both global growth um, uh, and therefore risks of inflation. There are supply-side risks as well, given what's happening in and around the Red Sea and in other areas. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not a very pretty picture, unfortunately. Now, we always, uh, just before the break, we were mentioning some of the, um, you know, social justice and how that is linked to Hmm. what we would like to achieve or what these individuals and governments are trying to achieve in the world today, economic justice. And as we've seen, that is not possible without social justice. Now, just very briefly, what the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has said, I mentioned beforehand that we have a responsibility. We have been appointed as trustees, as representatives over this world, and there is enough for everyone. I think that is something that we need to keep an eye out. When His Holiness Hazrat Mizam Masood, the fifth caliph of the promised Messiah, on whom be peace, addressing the guests at the peace symposium, which is held here in Batavatu, as well as in other parliaments or in other settings, he has always mentioned that it doesn't give greater nations or bigger nations, more powerful nations, the right to serve the rights of other smaller nations just because they are not able to defend themselves. And I think this is something that probably in the last couple of years we've we've probably seen through social media, through different reports, and also 
um, in other organizations how this world is actually working, who is working for what benefit, and, and if there is any underlying reason why certain countries support certain countries, proxy wars being fought, um, and so many more things. That has very, very much opened up the eyes of people. And it's something that I noticed that people are not even hiding anymore. They don't really shy away from, from, from saying or from telling the world, yeah, this is, this is what we're doing. W- what are you going to do about it? It's always about self-interest. It's always about putting yourself first and your country first, which is all right. I mean, if you are an elected official, if you are the head of state, you have to put your country first. But at what cost? Yeah, I think it, it used to be about uh, uh, self-interest. And now it's about naked self-interest. I yeah. think it's all out in the open. And uh, reminds me of, uh, uh, of a quote, actually, um, which is um, highly regarded in, um, in, in many circles and uh, among politicians. Uh, but to me, it sounds a bit uh, Machiavellian. I think it's, um, uh, it's from a foreign secretary of, um, uh, of, of uh, the United Kingdom. And he, um, uh, I think it was uh, Lord Palmerston, if I remember correctly, but I could be wrong there. But but he said, um, and I quote that, um, it's it, it's not uh, it's it, it's really it's it's our interests that are are essential. It's not principles. It's not anything else. Uh, sorry, I'm paraphrasing here, not and not exactly quoting, but he's you know he's supposed to have said that it it is it is really the self interest. It is not the principles of any country of any individual that drive the foreign policy of any country. It's really the 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 naked self interest of it is our interests. I think he said that are essential, and those hmm. interests it is our duty to follow. Is what I think it said. So it's it's all about um, you know your own interests rather than yeah. um, uh, um, rather than anything else. And I think that is a, is a very nice segue to what we're trying to talk about in our next next segment as well, which is about the linkage between religion and and economy and um, and morality. I guess we cannot have morality. I mean, yeah. we, we just agreed that we cannot have social justice. You cannot have economic justice without social justice. And I think social justice is, is hugely linked to to religion and, and the need um, to have a moral code. Absolutely. And this is something that comes from the divine. I mean, we as mankind, when we developed, this is what God Almighty intended to do, have a, have a gradual progress, have a gradual um, development of, of man's moral and spiritual faculties. So when Prophet Adam, peace upon him, was sent to this world, when God Almighty addressed him to be the first prophet ad- appointed by God Almighty, these were some of the very, very basic rules. And then it continued and moved on. So we saw 124,000 prophets in the course of, of, of our history, all culminating in what we who we believe to be the greatest and the most perfect of all prophets, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, where the final law, the final book, the, the final divine guidance of God Almighty, word for word was revealed to him that highlighted for the next centuries, for the, for the next, I don't know how, for the end, till the end of times, 
the rules and regulations that we need to keep in mind to make sure that we please both God Almighty and God Almighty's creation. More on that, why do we need a religion? We're going to take a very short break here and then we'll be back and continue with the second topic. In the meantime, if you have any questions about this, if you want to um, join the conversation, do so on 0208-687-7878. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Writings of the Promised Messiah, Salam. He is wonderfully omnipotent and marvellous are his holy powers. While on the one hand, he allows ignorant opponents to attack his friends like dogs. On the other hand, he commands the angels to serve them. In the same way, when his wrath comes upon the world, and his anger surges against the wrongdoers, God watches over and protects his chosen ones. Were it not so, the entire mission of the people of God would end in disarray, and no one would be able to recognize them. His powers are infinite, but they are revealed to people in proportion to their belief. Those who are blessed with certainty and love, and sever all ties for him, and have broken free from selfish habits, it is for their sake that miracles are shown. God does what he wills, but he chooses to demonstrate his miraculous powers only to those who break from their ill habits for his sake. In this day and age, there are very few people who know him and believe in his extraordinary powers. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back. For centuries, the need for religion has been debated over and over again. Some deny that it serves humanity any purpose whatsoever, whilst others have experienced firsthand the miracles that it can bring into one's life. In that short clip, that we've just played from the Prophet Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Ghulam and whom be peace. He has mentioned that God does exist and He shows His miracles, but there are there are very few who actually go through the time, have the patience, have the perseverance to see those miracles unfold. We live in a world that we want quick results. We want them right now and we want them yesterday. So in this show, we, we, we are going to discuss or we're going to speak about not only the need for religion, but also covering the need for interreligious peace. As on the 21st of January, this Sunday, the world will be celebrating World Religion Day, an occasion for people of all faiths to come together and foster understanding. Whether you are a believer, whether you are a devout believer, a practicing believer, someone just exploring spirituality or even a skeptic, we're trying to or we will try to provide some insight into the enduring re relevance of religion in our diverse world today. When it comes to our life, there are some fundamental aspects of 
that life. In the Holy Quran, the Book of Islam, there are numerous verses that emphasize the importance of faith, the importance of guidance, and the purpose of our existence on this planet. One chapter in chapter in chapter 23, verse 115 says, Did you then think that we had created you without purpose and that you would not be brought back to us? So it is a, a, a challenge to the notion that we exist without any purpose, without any meaning. And it also speaks about the idea that human creation is not just a random act or a frivolous act, but it is with a purpose. And individuals will be held accountable for their deeds in their afterlife. So 0208 is the number for you to call if you want to have your say. If you want to ask us any question or if you want to join the conversation, please feel free to do that. You can also send us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK or also on Instagram. There's a question we're asking you on Instagram. How do you need religion to be a good person? Yes, no, or unsure. Yes, absolutely. I think, um, as we were talking about earlier, Imam Reza, I, the, the two topics that uh, we're trying to talk about today, we've talked about um, the world economy, we've talked about um, the risks there, we've talked about um, poverty, we've talked about, uh, uh, you know, more hope, uh, um, hopefully uh, some sense um, or some semblance of uh, sense uh, coming to our world leaders and and as, as uh, His Holiness has been um, saying for the last uh, uh, many decades, actually, and especially in the last few weeks uh, in relation to the conflict in um, uh, in Palestine at the moment, that um, it's it is it is so important that the world leaders um, think about the collective good of the world and think about peace and think about giving uh, getting some closure on um, uh, on these conflicts and thinking about the world after rather than thinking about their jingoistic um, personal interests and um, uh, to quote a verse uh, from the holy quran as well um in the holy quran in chapter 49 verse 11 says surely all believers are brothers so make peace between brothers and fear allah that mercy may be shown to you. This is from uh, chapter uh, 49, verse uh, 11, emphasizing equality and mutual support. And this concept is what Quran um, extensively encourages and encourages all Muslims to treat, treat each other with kindness, empathy, and, uh, and shared responsibility. But unfortunately, we, don't, we see little of that at the moment uh, uh, in the world, and dare I say, within the the Muslim world as well. Indeed. Um, so moving on, uh, this uh, responsibility that we we share as a collective of of looking after after this planet, looking after this earth that we have been put on, there is a purpose behind that. So as I said, Islam consists of two parts: basically, the rights that we owe to each other, and the the rights that we owe to God Almighty, and the rights that we owe to each other. And when we explore this question of whether we need religion today or not, it's important to 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 realize that the practice of religion has has been a long-lasting aspect of human history, and there is enough evidence, there is enough proof that various forms of religious beliefs and rituals have been present in human society for, for thousands, if not more, 
uh, of, of years. However, the nature and ex- expression of religious beliefs, that indeed has evolved over time. And not all human societies have practiced organized religion in the same way. You have different cultures, you have different civilizations, and they all develop their own unique religious traditions. So you had the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, Greek, Roman, Hindu, Chinese religion, ju- just, just to name a few. I think the problem that people nowadays have, and I think this is something I've spoken to someone when just recently it was a was a individual from Croatia mm-hmm. and he I was so I was talking to him telling me telling him about what 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 I do for a living and he picked up on one point about spirituality and so I was talking about how to how spirituality fits in all to all of this how religion fits into our, our sh- or should fit into our daily lives and shouldn't be at odds with with with, uh, with each other and he had a problem with that hmm. and when i asked him about so why why is that such an issue for you why do you not adhere to to a religion why do you not accept religion to be so relevant he actually told me about his story so he used to go to a christian school when when he was growing up and disagreed with many of the points that that they taught Mm-hmm. for example evolution or even the the crucifixion mm-hmm. and that was kind of imposed on him mm-hmm. so you have to believe this is what it is it's god's miracle whatever you want to call it and you have no option so this point or this aspect of organized religion that you have to go to church that you have to go to the mosque without telling people what are the benefits what's the reason behind what's the purpose of you going to the mosque why do you go on a friday prayer why do you why should you take time out and 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 um, go to the mosque these are the questions that a lot of people or a lot of, a lot of organizations were unable to answer and then you have this schism between religion and science then economics when we were talking about before how much of religion does play a role in in, in economics if at all so there's no space for faith for morality for spirituality for religion in any other sphere but the houses of worship you see this pandemic of um irrationality um that has been spread in 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 recent centuries especially uh, in in the last 2 3 centuries has has made people rebel against religion and that uh, that was certainly true in the uh, in the age of reformation probably still is true uh, because a lot of people are still leaving organized church so it's true in christianity but it's also increasingly true within the muslim world and it's also true for for many other religions in hindus and and buddhists and 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 other religions as well and i it stems from as i said because rationality has been separated from religion yeah. and and i guess and unfortunately i think the uh, the worst part is so so this is one issue that we've totally separated we've totally divorced rationality from religion um and this is how most people in the world view religion today as being totally irrational uh, people who believe in religion yeah. as well 
forget about the the non-believers who definitely think that religion is not not rational even believers would would have many beliefs which uh, which are irrational so uh, so you have this issue and then uh, the other issue is that you, you know you have people um uh, leaving for example the example that you mentioned leaving christianity um and then because of what we see in the media hmm. in recent times uh to what i think is the best kept secret of the world which is the true islam hmm. which we within the ahmadiyya muslim community represent uh where we believe total harmony between the word of god which is quran and the work of god which is science but the media has made people uh media has made islam to be such a big villain that nobody uh, nobody's thought even crosses um Uh, uh, goes to that direction. I'll I'll add you another one on that. I think it's yes, the media plays a big role, but I think even the scholars and the clerics of certain faiths. I can speak for Islam for sure. So these 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 scholars and these ulama or these these faith leaders, I I think they have contributed to this as well. Massively by the way they teach by, that by uh, wrongly uh, interpreting exactly the text. Yeah. right. So going the the extreme way. We're going to continue with this after we've spoken to our first guest for today, who's a political scientist and a co-founder and the co-founder of the G20 Interfaith Forum, Dr. Brian Adams with us on the line. Dr. Brian, good afternoon. Peace upon you. Welcome to the Draft Time show. Uh, thank you. Peace be upon you. Um as as a co-founder of the G, G20 Interfaith Forum, how do you deal with the diverse perspectives to create recommendations that are both inclusive and effective in addressing global challenges which are then later on discussed at the G20 leaders summit so um actually before we get into this th- this G20 interfaith forum or interfaith summit how how is that different is that connected to the G20 and if so what is the link there All right. Um so the G20 itself is a gathering of the um the leaders and finance ministers of the 20 largest economies in the world. Yes. And every year it's hosted by one of those countries. And they have a consultative process that they'll follow each year to get um input on an agenda that has already been set. So those could be groups from uh labor, from women, from business, from youth so on and so forth depending on uh the country and which groups w- uh they want to engage with uh and so the G20 interfaith forum arose out of a recognition in uh, 2014 when the G20 was hosted by Australia that the there wasn't a, an explicit faith perspective contributing to these policy recommendations and the reality is a vast majority of the world's population profess a religion those practices and those beliefs those perspectives have a, a huge impact on their economic decision making so therefore it made sense to try to include that in the process all right so that explains it now i'm guessing that's different religions different faiths different perspectives coming together Correct. and then trying to address and tackle these challenges that we as a collective face how do you come up with recommendations where 
well i'm i'm guessing nobody will ever be happy all all of the all of the groups involved and all of the individuals involved but you have to make some some headway there isn't it yeah yeah definitely um so there are a couple ways that uh, are a couple things that help us do this one is we have a uh, an overarching um theme of the sustainable development goals and so we keep that going from year to year and continue to develop recommendations related to that but also there is an explicit agenda set by each country uh for their G20 meeting so that does help us focus rather than just having everybody kind of throw in what they want uh we have a bit of a focus and then it's been organized in a way that we have um uh different tracks to work on so we may have human trafficking or child labor or uh the list can continue on but we have someone who heads up that working group and then they will um bring together scholars, policymakers, um influential thinkers in those areas with uh that have a faith-based perspective to then build a recommendation each year on that. So that's that's a bit of the process. Hmm. Okay, and then what happens? I mean you had the one in September in 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 India I believe the G20 right and the the G20 interfaiths forum before that was in Abu Dhabi correct me if I'm wrong or Brazil what was it no Brazil was this year No we've we've had some um uh some pre-conference meetings related to them and developing those but the for example uh the United Arab Emirates is not an official part of the G20 yes but they are still um they have a very strong um uh stance on religious tolerance and harmony but mm-hmm. also engaging with these issues so they're very supportive of um activities such as the G20 interfaith forum mm-hmm. so we hold pre-conference meetings in some of these other countries as well mm-hmm. and that allows us to reach uh other groups uh other voices that perhaps would not typically be able to be involved in the the usual G20 consultative process but how it works is each year it 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 varies quite frankly some countries for example when we were in china um they had very little interest in a broad based religious hmm. uh, perspective contribution germany or argentina on the other hand we've had much much greater success uh in engaging with um the policymakers and the leadership of the country for example the vice president at the time uh opened the conference uh, came and attended and spoke at the opening of the conference and we had some some of our recommendations particularly around human trafficking that uh, Argentina included in its final um recommendations to the G20 as well mm-hmm. so it's it's uh, it depends on the country okay how successful um Dr Adams do you think you've been um in terms of informing political policy through religious understanding yeah um again it i wouldn't say it's hit or miss but i would say it's it's spotty um there are times and locations where we've had uh, much greater success much greater influence than at others and you have to adapt your strategy um for for each context as well. So for example, um during the COVID pandemic, uh I was still based in Australia and working out of the Center for Interfaith and Cultural Dialogue. 
And um, I wrote an opinion piece in which I said, if, if government is serious about implementing COVID policy, then it needs to take faith uh, perspectives uh, or faith communities on board as partners, legitimate partners. And from that, um, someone in the, the, the government of Queensland, the state of Queensland in Australia, read that and realized, look, we have a major gap in, in our plan. Uh, so they reached out to us and we facilitated, um, one, a broad consultation among faith groups in uh, Queensland to uh, raise what are the issues and concerns that they would have. And then two, to use that same group to write the policy paper for implementing um, COVID policy in places of worship in Queensland. So we had an enormous impact. And, and while it's difficult to quantify, uh, I feel very strongly that we saved lives. And relative to other states in Australia that didn't adapt this approach, we had, um, we had greater success, greater buy-in, less public uh, pushback, uh, especially from faith communities on some of these um, uh, policies, and it made a big difference. Can you talk us through the uh, the cure program for multi multicultural oh, sure. competence, uh, which I believe is um, is one of your achievements? Can you th- can you share what the program's aims um, uh, were? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you. It's um, so the cure. It stands for courage and understanding lead to respect. The idea is it's a framework, based framework, that can be used um, to help um, strengthen and guide our cross-cultural engagements or our cross-cultural activities within an organization, within a faith community, within a community, um, you know, a broad-based community, uh, within a business. But the idea is as we build our courage to engage with others, and strengthen our efforts to understand their views, um, we build an environment of respect. When you have respect between you, it doesn't mean you agree on everything. It doesn't mean you accept, you know, the other perspectives. But when you have a respectful environment, then we're able to share more meaningfully uh, those points and perspectives that are unique to us. And when you have that, you have a, you have cohesion. You have resources for innovation, be it social or uh, economic innovation. Um, you have um, greater peace, um, better foundation for development. So that's that, that's the broad uh, mm. the broad objective and framework for it. How much of a role, Dr. Brian, if I may ask? So. Mm-hmm. Just, just for my personal understanding and for the benefit of our listener, how how does that work? I mean, do we do do these participants? Do they like from their faith perspective that this is what my religion teaches me? This is what I have learned through my faith, or this is the work that I'm doing based on my scripture? Mm-hmm. Is is that how they come up with with the solutions or with the recommendations? Mm-hmm. Apologies. Not, not. Ne- oh, so, are you returning to the G20? Yes, yes. Form, so, I, I just wanted okay. to wrap my head around that one more time. Right. Um, that can be that can be any of those. So, let's say we have a working group on. Um, uh, let's see, rainforest preservation, right? Um, in reality, there are. A, it's a. It's an issue that. 
um, we all have a stake in because the rainforest, mm. as some would say, uh, in Africa, in um, Southeast Asia, in um, South America, are the lungs of the planet, right? So um, there are many faith groups that are involved in this. Are uh, Not only are they directly impacted because they live there, but um, they feel ethically, theologically, um, doctrinally um, obligated to comment on, to contribute to, uh, and shaping the, the preservation of, of rainforest. So they can, um, and it, they can, um, when we're putting together recommendations, um, the recommendation itself doesn't um, usually quote scripture as the foundation for sure. um, the recommendation, but rather it uses um, the platform of a consensus statement from a broad range of perspectives that um, this is uh, needs to be taken into consideration. So it uses the force of, of you know, the moral hmm. philosophical argument, but also the the weight of, you know, if you can get this broad range of religious voices together on this issue, yeah. there's probably a chance that I, as a political decision maker, would want to listen to that. Is that also because the morals are, are missing from from the politicians? <laughs> no, just, yeah, just kidding, we, just kidding. I do take on some uh, <laughs> some seemingly impossible tasks at times. Yeah, it's true. No, I'm just <laughs> so it, I, we can absolutely appreciate it. this is an uphill battle um, as in, in 2024. Um, Dr. Adams, the G20 Interfaith Forum is um, or promotes thought leadership. Mm-hmm. That's one of the um, your aims. Do you mind, Dr. Adams, what is the biggest challenge facing the world today? Um, and and how do you think the G20 Interfaith Forum can actually help um, um, uh, address that challenge? Yeah. I'm going to um, contextualize uh, my response. So I do come at it from more of a Western liberal framework, right? Uh, sure. um, and it's difficult, therefore, for me to speak for the entire world. And even the G20 Interfaith Forum itself is mm-hmm. really focused on the 20 largest economies in the world. So even that's not... Uh, as broadly representative as a as a worthy question like this would merit, but I would say one of the greatest challenges we're facing is we've reached uh, an end um, to the age of tolerance, where tolerance was was a virtue that was strong enough for our societies uh, in which to operate, and on which we base a lot of our democratic processes as well was on this uh, principle of, uh, of tolerance. But we've come to the end of that. We find that how we're evolving in terms of uh, individuality and human rights um, are straining that. And so we need to decide, are we going to move into an age of respect or are we going to toss out tolerance altogether and um, 
individual or small national or community interests um, that that drive us. And if it's the latter, then many of our uh, political structures, our institutions, educational to religious, um, aren't going to survive. Mm. But if we can move towards a, an age of respect, mm. um, then we have a chance. I think we'll we'll, we'll see will unleash enormous human flourishing that um, has yet to be even imagined. Sure. And so a lot of my work is simply hmm. building the social infrastructure to, um, to allow people to engage respectfully with each other. So platforms like the G20 Interfaith Forum, programs like the CURE um, program for multicultural competence, uh, so on and so forth, those are all can be classified as... Um, social infrastructure to to make this possible, to help us realize that. Right. If I can slightly challenge you on that, Dr. Adams. Sure. So um, uh, I, a good example that uh, comes to mind, or, an a, or a example that comes to mind, is um, that of United Nations Security Council, mm-hmm. in which there is a respectful exchange of views, in which all parties are able to come on the table, have a seat on the table, and um, give their opinion, um, voice their thoughts. Um, And yet, we see that there is actually very little action. So Mm -hmm. we here in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, what we've been championing, and this is uh, from our spiritual leader, the fifth head sure. of the, the our community, Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand. I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting him on two different oh. occasions. Oh, really? When was, yes. uh, when was that? One was at uh, uh, your annual conference in uh, the UK, and another time was when um, the Ahmadi community in um, Queensland was opening a mosque, and he, right. he came. Yeah. Australia. Amazing. All right. Small world. Yeah. So what <laughs> he's been championing over the past couple of decades is the need for justice, the absence of justice in the world yeah. and the increasing need for having a rules-based order and a just-based international order. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I've I've got no problem with that. And I don't see... Having a, um, uh, how can I put it? I don't see the incompatibility of having justice mm. and a rules-based international order um, with having a, a an age of respect and treating each other respectfully. Um, not a bit. Sure, absolutely. Because I would I- challenge your your um, depiction of the UN Security Council and its um, okay. decision making processes. I don't see them as as egalitarian or um, collaborative as it seems. Absolutely not. Uh, so my point exactly, uh, Doctor Adams. Yeah, absolutely. So you know what I'm trying to say here is that you know you're able to get 15 people uh, or 15 countries around the table. Mm-hmm. You're able to get them to engage with each other respectfully. You're able to to even hear each other out, even if you're not listening. Uh, but at the end of it, there is very little action, and very, there is very little collaboration. Uh, and the yeah. United Nations Security Council is failing because of how it is structured, and therefore this this huge need for 
for you know if i may put it this way to go one step further and and have this justice and i have a uh, have an order where um uh, where you can also have an a good respectful exchange of views but also then have the the systems which create justice or which which allow justice to uh, to actually start be established yep i um yeah i um, i see what you're saying i uh i i think the thing i would add and perhaps um would strengthen the the call for a rules based um environment uh or order is um how would you achieve consensus on what those rules would be if you don't have a broad consensus um which is what we have today the the rules based order is being promoted but uh we uh, consensus is even breaking down around it if you don't have consensus on it then um how just would it be and how broad based or universal would be the application of that so now what i would say to that uh, sorry to cut you dr adams i mean i i said you no, need to be uh, impertinent but sure. um i i guess one answer to the question to to the very apt question you you're putting is that um, i think there has been consensus if you look at uh, the current conflict in the middle east i think in the last um, voting that took place in the united nations security council there were only one or two probably just one hand going against a resolution so i would mm-hmm. actually um, say that there was a huge amount of consensus but it is because how united nations security council is structured in a very uh, anti democratic way that that consensus could not be materialized that that consensus could not be put into action Sure, and I think I think it's very clear that that's what happened. And when I was mm-hmm. talking about consensus, is creating this um, this rules based world order that um, to which you had referred that um, um, your leader, his actually Mirza Masrur Ahmad, had um, has proposed and has been very you know he's given a lot of thought and work into developing that idea. And the point I was trying to get at is. if you have um respectful relationships if you have um this um willingness to work together then that lays the foundation for being able to create this order personally i don't think there it, it will ever be perfect while we're hmm. still led yeah. by humans here on this earth um but having that relationship allows us to revisit it to readjust yeah. it to work 100% you have absolutely to, yeah Yeah. And I think so, and that's where my work comes in is yeah, helping lay that yeah. foundation or that infrastructure Correct. to allow that type of um well, 100% okay uh, absolutely so I guess that foundation that that basis has to be there for the next step to to happen if you're absolutely Correct. right if if there is Correct. no understanding if there is no respect then you know you can forget about everything else and there's a lot more things yeah. that we have in common than than set us apart but Absolutely. tend to focus Absolutely. on the things that yeah. that do set us apart. Yeah. And to uh, be quite honest, um respect isn't a high enough goal ultimately. That's just the next step. Wouldn't it as is, you know, on your own religion, um love if we could then achieve a world of of love, yeah. then that would be that would be the next step. That's where we really want to get to, but we've got to yeah. find ways to 
to build off of where we are. You may have heard uh, of our motto, Dr. Adams, which is love for all, hatred for none. And if you mm-hmm. haven't, oh, yes, that, yes. that's that's the motto for yes. community. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's it's to that that I was referring when I was yeah. right? excellent. I think that that's where we're going. And that's I mean that that's where you put in God. So you have that love for all, hatred for none, based on the love that you have for God. Because I mean, one of the things that the the previous uh, successor said that if you love God, then you cannot. There's no way that you can not love His creation or hate His creation. That's that's yeah, something. Yeah, that's yeah. the that's the glue that holds us together. Um, Dr. Brian, it was absolutely wonderful to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. We took, I think, more than we anticipated. (laughs) But (laughs) but thank you very much for for staying with us. And uh, a great evening ahead to you. And uh, peace be upon you. Thank you so much. Uh, I wish you a wonderful 2024, you and the rest of the world. Thank you very much. Take care. 0208-687-7878. Eight is the number for you to call. Now, do we have to be religious to be good people? That is the question we are asking you on our opinion poll on Instagram. So go to our story uh, at Voice of Islam UK and leave us a vote or cast your vote. I want to go back to the um, uh, to the discussion around <coughs> the solution that um, Islamic thought presents or Islamic text presents to the problems uh, of the world. And um, the Quran talks, for example, a lot about the rights of the orphans. And I was reading up on um, uh, this book uh, called Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues, written by the fourth head of the Amdi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed. May Allah have mercy on his soul, a, a great read if uh, anybody hasn't read that book. Um, and he actually um, it takes the word orphan and enlarges its meaning in that book uh, in a very global manner. So um, he writes, and I quote from that book, the word orphan is used in a wider sense in the Quran as it applies to dependent individuals as well as nations. Such nations who like orphans with wealthy relations have been abandoned by the Kithinkin, mm. should not be left unaided because they might be helped by others who are primarily responsible for them. Then he goes on to say, the case of the oil-rich states is a fit example. If only a few states of the Gulf had joined hands to relieve immense sufferings of humanity at large, they could have resolved the problem of hunger and drought in Africa without feeling a pinch. The mountains of money they have in bank deposits and foreign assets in Western countries generates interest and income which alone is sufficient to allay the misery and suffering to Africa. In any case, Islam forbids them from spending such interest for their own use. The case of a multitudinous sea of hunger, misery and want from the numerous calamities in other countries, for example, Bangladesh, is another devastating case to be studied in this context. They have been abandoned by the rest of the world to their own lot. The aid, if any, which trickles down to them is virtually ineffective for relieving their misery. Such nations must be considered orphan nations according to the wider definition of the term. When such orphan nations are abandoned by their own kith and kin, this constitutes a serious crime in the sight of God. End quote. Interesting. Never thought about this. 
I mean, amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the situation, the world problems right there. And they get exploited then as a result of that. Yeah, because they know there's no one to look after them. Correct. And and nobody talks about this. Yeah. His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, uh, the fifth successor to the Promised Messiah, the current Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Now, he spoke about this need for religion in this day and age at uh, the annual convention in the United Kingdom in 2014. And he said that critics of religion do not limit themselves to objecting to religion alone. In fact, they also oppose the concept of the existence of God. In our current era, this censure, this censure of God has reached far greater proportions than that of previous times, with vast quantities of books which have and continue to be written. Further, in the modern era, electronic means have made it far easier for widely public, for, to widely publicize these criticisms. In these in times gone by, it would have been it would have taken a considerable length of time to convey one's idea and message to others, and it would only be conveyed to a minority of educated people. Whilst today, through the electronic media and other modes of communication, such critiques can be disseminated to virtually everyone, and as a result, a significant proportion has started to distance themselves from religion. So you had Quran burnings, you've had bans on 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 religious wear religious gear or religious clothing you had or tried to ban even religious buildings even and it's it's ongoing until we reached the point where i mean it's unavoidable to speak about this conflict where people who were outside of that conflict us as onlookers from around the world when we ask the question, where is God in this? Yeah. Where Where is he? But the people who are on the ground there, who are going through that themselves, they're constantly and constantly referring to this, this very beautiful um, prayer or, or verse that God is sufficient for us. Mm. That he's the only one that we have to please. He's the only one that we can expect something from, and you'd never come across any kind of lamentation, any kind of uh, questioning as to where God is. They're not asking the question. The people sitting outside of that conflict zone, they are asking that question. So the conviction that they have. It's again, the need for religion in today's day and age is because we have everything. If you look at the West, when we think about faith, when we think about you know this, this main topic that His Holiness has picked up, the existence of God or the concept of the existence of God, if that is clear, everything else will fall into place mm. because he is ultimately the central figure of any faith whatsoever. You can name it Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, for sure. So if you have that nucleus quant like defined and you know what it means, you know how to understand that, that concept of the existence of God, then everything else will be easy to follow, easy to understand because you've learned about the source. And the, the issue that we have is, as I said in the start, we want... We want to get to God very quickly. We want to see Him. We want to experience <laughs> Him. But we don't have the time to go through the hurdles. If you take a look at prophets, 
what did they not go through if you look at the early muslims or even the early christians for that matter mm. when their faith was based on the actual teachings of prophet jesus what did they not go through they they hid for 300 years they hid in in caves and catacombs from persecuted from from the people of their time but they did not give up so the similar case with muslims at the very early start during the time of the holy prophet peace blessings of allah be upon him then after when islam expanded they had the option to give up that faith but they saw something they they saw the need of that religion for them which is why they stuck to it mm. so much so that they were ready to give up their lives so these people are seeing something in their faith aren't they they're seeing the value of their faith they're seeing the value of their religion which is why they're sticking to it so rigidly mm. um and not resorting to revenge not resorting to killing of innocent people not resorting to indiscriminate bombing of 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 innocent people because they know this is not the 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 religion this is not the faith this is not the teaching that their god our god um allah the almighty has has given them and that's something for us very difficult to understand so i do get it sometimes when when people in the west talk about this when they say i don't have a need for religion mm. why not because you have everything and it's very difficult to to go after and to find and to search for for something if you if you are comfortable and again this is not something which is new god has said in the holy quran there's a there's a verse that talks about that when my servant when everything is good when everything is working perfectly fine he doesn't think of me when does he think mm. of me mm. when he's when he's in a pickle mm. and this is addressing the believers not not mm. people who don't even believe this is mm. addressing the believers that he doesn't think of me mm. and then when he is in a predicament when he has a problem where what 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 happens you see him in prostration yeah. you see him begging you see him weeping he's saying oh god oh god <laughs> help me mm. and then i do help him mm. our favor and our blessings we bestow on him and then he forgets again and then he forgets again mm. Yeah. Right. So, but in all of this, I think it's our responsibility. It's our role of of people of faith who who who've seen the benefits, who experience the benefit, who see the miracles that the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, is talking about on a daily basis, on a regular basis, to tell the world about that. I would actually go so far as to say that uh, the typical Westerner. Uh, doesn't understand what religion can offer to him or her yeah which is why they think that they don't need religion because um what are we uh, humans are body and soul yeah and there is this increasing need for looking after our spirituality within religion or without religion yeah So there is this this I think more and more realization within the western society and eastern society for that matter that there is a need for religion or there is a need for spirituality but I think what they do not understand is or they've got wrong and and I think people of religion uh have a lot to blame for that okay. also because of how they have behaved and how the media has accentuated uh that behavior as well that they don't realize that uh what religion really can offer to them is the spiritual satisfaction 
is this um, spiritual enlightenment, is this balance, sense of balance that no gym, no drugs, mm. nothing else will ever offer to them. And spirituality without a purpose. Uh, this is, again, maybe a topic for another day, but I am after spirituality. I'm I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not religious. Well, that I still have to understand. Hmm. Anyways, we're coming to the end of today's program. The Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, speaking about what religion is. He says, what is religion? It is the path one adopts for oneself. In reality, everyone has a religion or creed. An irreligious person who does not believe God exists still has to choose a path to follow, which in essence is their religion. However, one should stop to think whether the path they have chosen in life truly gives them everlasting happiness, peace, and tranquility. This question should be posed to rejectors of religion. Religion in, in, is only a general word. It means the path one treads on, and it is not a word that exclusively applies to faith. Experts in the arts, sciences, physics, medicine, astronomy, and any field of knowledge also have canons, doctrines, and beliefs. However, it is a certainty that these people, that these will not provide salvation to anyone. Just as a soul requires a body and words need meaning, so too does mankind stand in need of religion. The point here is not whether the being is called Allah, God, or Parmeshwar. Rather, the real issue is how one perceives the being he calls out to. Our view is, that whatever name one assigns to the higher being, the real question is how the real question is how do they recognize and comprehend him? What attributes does that being possess? The actual matter one the actual matter one should reflect on is the nature of the attributes of the divine being. The essence of religion is based just is based on just two overriding aspects, which are the rights due to God and the rights due to his creation. And there's so much more that he has said on this. But if you want to read any of that, of course we can't just, um, uh, we don't have the time to read everything out. You can go to alislam.org and find all of the writings of the Promised Messiah on whom be peace. Um, I would recommend the essence of Islam, which is in chapters speaking about different topics. Thank you very much for listening in today, for being with us today uh, in today's draft. I'm sure tomorrow morning SML is going to be with you and the uh, Weekend World's team is going to host you on a, on Sunday morning. The draft time show uh, will be back on Monday, but on a Monday morning, Brother Daniel will welcome you into the week at the breakfast show. Correct? Absolutely, yeah. Look forward to that. So thank you very much. Uh, again, today's program was researched and produced by Amit Al-Badi Khan and Zora Mubashir. Jazakallah, thank you so much to them as well. And thank you to Shariar in the tech room as well for being with us and for connecting us to our guests. And also, of course, thank you to our guests. Well, we wish you a great and wonderful weekend ahead from all of us. Assalamu